The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. And not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they At sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to Children's Church, please join our volunteers over by the Kids Zone sign. again every time all right let's dive in um like i said i'm jared i'm on staff here with restoration Southside, and so happy to be with you i uh I've missed you. I've missed being with you, and um, I certainly uh, have missed uh, your stories. And, and I, it's good to be back. So um, we continue our study in the book of Mark. Um, one of the things that's going on here is that Mark emphasizes to us a kingdom of conflict. That Jesus is bringing conflict to the powers that be, and we see that. Throughout Mark, over and over again, Jesus is getting in these these standoffs with the spirit. Excuse me, with the the demon spirits, with the Pharisees, with the teachers of the law. Is that Jesus brings conflict, and so it's a different picture than a lot of us remember from growing up. And we had Jesus sort of holding these little lambs and petting them, and that was sort of the vision that we had of Jesus. And this Jesus is more like uh, somebody who wants to come and take back what has been taken from him. And it, it reminds us, it reminds us if you've seen the movie Taken from Liam Neeson, I think they've made about three or four of them now. But this is what he says when they take, Liam Neeson's daughter is kidnapped and taken, and then Liam Neeson ends up on the phone with the guy that has kidnapped them. He says, I don't know who you are and I don't know what you want. 
If you are looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills I have acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> the righteous anger of a father who is going to take back his children who were robbed from him. And part of why that movie was such a big hit is because it taps into that righteous anger that that's not what children are meant for. Dads should come after them to take them back. And that's what's going on here. It is raining so hard. I'll be loud, but Kyle will make sure I'm not too loud. Or Luke will. Jesus here is basically saying, I am coming for you, Satan, to take back my children. And that's where we find the story today. So let's pray and ask God to bless our study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your grace to us. And I praise you that you work through your spirit and the word. And I ask that you would uh, fill our hearts with hope. We've been lied to by Satan. We lie to each other. We lie to ourselves. We lose battles constantly against sin and against suffering. And we're convinced that you're not very fond of us. Would you this morning remind us that you're so fond of us and that you are a victorious conqueror and that you bring the truth because you are the truth. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Growing up in St. Louis, when I was a young boy, my parents attended, uh, we, we attended as a family, Kirk of the Hills Presbyterian Church. Kirk of the Hills is a historic Presbyterian Church, and part of why it's so historic is it has this amazing pastor with a photographic memory named Wilson Benton. Wilson Benton was a southern boy from Mississippi, got a PhD in Scotland, and, and yet he was in the middle of America preaching every week, and people would come from a long ways to hear him. He had this incredible draw, drawl, southern drawl. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Again, let us look to him briefly in prayer. He'd be like, that was so good. <laughs> one morning when I was little, he's in the middle of one of his very beautiful crafted sermons, and a woman stands up in the middle of church, talks over him as he just takes a breath, just for pause, just for emphasis. She stands up and starts talking in a loud voice and says, you know, I was thinking that I shouldn't go to church today, and so I was in the grocery store, and I was in the, the salad department and the veggies, and then all of a sudden God spoke to me and said that I needed to be at church, and now that I'm here and I'm certain that I should be, and you could just feel the Presbyterians cringing. <laughs> Some churches that might fly, not in the Presbyterian world. We were all like, this woman does not have lines in this play. And we were so uncomfortable. A public forum where there's supposed to be a speaker and somebody stands up and cries out. 
It's a moment to remember. That's what it, what's going on here in the text. Now, I'm not saying that woman was possessed by the devil or anything like that, but can you imagine the tension? Public religion, a speaker who's supposed to be there, and somebody cries out in the middle of it. That's the tension I want you to feel. I don't want any of you to try it on me. I'm not interested in that. But I want you to feel that tension. You could hear a pin drop. The reason that it's such a poignant moment is because the story of Mark is Jesus clashing against the kingdoms of this world, clashing against the devil, clashing against the demons, clashing against the the false gospels that say you can be saved through your hard work or saved through the right family or saved through the right sorts of practices. And Jesus comes to clash and destroy those things. So I know it can seem that Jesus is this timid person and there is tenderness in him. We'll get to that. But what I want you to see this morning is that Jesus comes and fights the lies that you and I are told by being the truth. Jesus comes and is victorious and wins because he knew we would lose. And Jesus brings tenderness to his people and war to their enemies. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. First of all, he brings truth amid the lies that we were told. Do you remember way back in the beginning, the devil told Adam and Eve, you will not surely die. God just doesn't want you to get to be like him. The devil is an accuser and he brings lies and he lies to God's people and he lies to those who don't know God. And he gets us to lie to each other and he gets us to lie to ourselves. And Jesus comes bringing truth and authority amid the lies. And he comes, did you hear what they were saying in the passage? They keep saying he teaches as one with authority. He teaches as one with authority. What he's saying is that all the teachers of that time were famous because of the quotation marks that they would use. One rabbi once said, or as it says in the Torah, or a teacher of the law once wrote, Jesus quotes himself. Talk about a power move. You teach with authority when you created the tongue. You teach with authority when you crafted breath in the inner ear canal and sound waves. And when you were with the Father in eternity past and spirit and you know everything ever in the plan of salvation, you speak with authority. You know the law because you were there when it was written. Jesus comes to the religious leaders and to the demons and claims authority. I'm not an itinerant preacher. I am the truth. I have authority. You're going to have to deal with me. Tim Keller says this, You hear him say often in the King James Version, you you hear, verily, verily, I say unto thee, or amen and amen. Well, where this practice came from is it was used by the elders of the synagogue, and they would have an itinerant preacher. And if the itinerant preacher taught alongside Scripture and alongside tradition in a way that was correct, the elders would let the people know that they could take it seriously because they would say, verily, verily, amen and amen. 
Essentially, you can rely on this practice because we on the outside say that it is aligned with Scripture and with the truth. Do you see what that is? Keller says this, it's always used to teach, they affirm the teaching of someone else. Jesus, however, begins his own statements with this formula and bestows it on himself. This God is talking to you. That's what we find in the Bible is that God is talking to you. And Jesus says, I have the authority because I am God. I am truth. And we don't really like this. There are parts of the Bible we really love. The forgiveness and the mercy and the grace. Love them. Teach, teach us all about them. And there are parts of the Bible we don't like. We move away from the Bible as the authority. None of us like authority. We don't like bosses. We don't like teachers. We don't like coaches. In the West, it is allergic to delight in having a king. We, we want to be our own king. And so even though we're not like the demons, we're not like the, the Pharisees here, we don't want a king either. We want a savior, but we don't want a king. We want a rescuer, but we don't want someone to rule over us, as one pastor said. Hitchens, who is this famous unbeliever, atheist, uh, once he's now passed away, but he was brilliant, and he once said this, I, don't, I have been called arrogant myself in my time, and I hope to earn the title again. And he said, but to claim that I am privy to the secrets of the universe and its creator... That's beyond my conceit. I therefore have no choice but to find something suspect even in the humblest believer. What Hitchens is saying is how could one group of people claim to know that they have the truth and that they have the corner on the market? And Jesus is saying that is exactly what I'm claiming. That is exactly what I'm claiming. Jesus comes to wipe out the lies against us, among us, at us, by himself being the truth and by himself being our authority. And that's challenging for our Western ears. Jesus, give me the grace, give me the forgiveness, give me those passages about caring for the poor, bring them on, keep them coming. But don't you dare tell me about sex, Jesus. Don't you dare tell me who I can and can't love. Don't you dare tell me what to do with my wallet, Jesus. Don't you dare tell me what to do with my free time, Jesus. Don't you tell me how to use my words, Jesus. I'll keep you on the shelf, and when I need something, I'll take you down and talk with you. But otherwise, I'm not looking for an authority. I'm looking for a rescuer. And yes, he comes and is the greatest rescuer in history, but he doesn't say, I can come as your rescuer but not as your king. He says, take it or leave it. I'm the authority. You may not like his teaching on a certain thing, on anger, and sex, rest, how you speak to others, wealth. But friends, hear me. He doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. He doesn't answer to us. We answer to him. Now, God is so phenomenally 
wonderful and nuanced that he doesn't give the same treatment to the same postures towards him, if that makes sense. He knows when someone's doubting and discouraged and weary and how they need comfort and to be lifted up and to be encouraged and affirmed. He knows when someone needs to be healed versus when someone needs to be challenged, when someone's being arrogant and um, self-authoritative. An example of this is Job. Job is famous in the Bible because he's gone through this conflict and he's suffered. He's lost family members. He's lost uh, all of his wealth. He's even lost his personal health. And at first, he's tempted to doubt God, but he doesn't. Takes a stand against the devil. Doesn't. But as time wears on, Job finally begins to feel like, God, you owe me some answers. I've been following you. I've been blessing you. I've been trying to raise kids who love you. And I've been beat up. And I have no idea why. You you owe me some answers. And what's interesting in Job is that we know what the answers are. We know from Job 1 that there's this interaction that went from God. So God could, right there in Job 38, God could go, okay, here's what's going on, Job. There was this bet between me and the devil. And I was going to win, obviously. And so we kind of made you the... The, the character in the bet, and that's what happened. God could tell him that. God knows it, and we as the audience know it. And God looks at Job when Job challenges him and says, brace yourself like a man. Who are you to question me? He says, have you ever commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Job gets that kind of intense treatment Because Job is coming at God as if Job is the authority and God answers to him. And that's how we interact with God. When he's good to us, we take it, we soak it up, it's awesome. But when he says something in the Bible that we don't like, we go, where do you get off? Where do you get to make up stuff like this? This doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel good. This isn't what most of us are like now, God. And just like Job, we start to act as if we're the authority in our own life. Friends, we need to learn a little intellectual humility. I can tell you there are things in the Bible that I don't even like. And guess what? I have to live by them and teach them anyway. Our preferences is not the most important thing when we have a rescuer and a king. When Carson, my daughter, my only daughter, the one in the middle, who I call the rose among thorns and my sons call the thorn among roses, when she's doing something she's not allowed to do, I look at her and say, Carson, you may not do that. And she said, Mommy said I could. Mommy says so. She has learned already that if you appeal to a higher power, (laughs) that you're allowed to listen to the higher power. Friends, when you are called by Scripture to do something that you don't like or that you don't love, remember that Jesus has appealed to the highest power in Himself. And we have to obey them. And it's going to take time. It's going to take work. It's going to take community. It's going to take humility, repentance, and faith ad nauseum. Repeat. 
But we can't just go numb to it because we don't like it. In fact, here's one strategy. Oftentimes, obedience comes down to, I know I'm not supposed to do this. I'm going to try, 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 try not to do it. Or I know I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to try, 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 try do it. And it just becomes this transactional way of, with God. I know I'm not supposed to look at the internet and at, late at night and I'll try, try, try. Oh, I failed. Uh, and it just becomes transactional. Instead of going down and focusing on those moments, even though they're important, zoom back out and say, God, teach me to love what you love. Teach me to love what you love. I don't love what you love. In fact, I love a lot of the things you don't like. Change my heart. Teach me to love what you love. Teach me to fight what you're against. It changes. It it engages your heart in a different way because you're acknowledging it's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's about a relationship with Jesus. He said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands. It sounds hard to our ears, but you know, anyone that you're in a close relationship with, there are things you're allowed to do, and there are things you are not allowed to do if you want to expect the closeness of relationship with them. It's the same thing here. This is Jesus saying, you show your love for me by keeping my commands, at least taking them seriously, repenting and drawing near once again. The question for you, friends, is Jesus an authority or an advisor in your life? Is Jesus an authority or an advisor in your life? This even plays out to how you listen to a sermon. Really, the most meaningful connection you'll have to God's Word is through the preached Word. That means God in His providence chooses broken people who are sinners themselves, to stand up, preach what's in the Bible by the power of the Holy Spirit, and God is actually talking to you. That's what you're supposed to believe about sermons. It's not a speech. It's not a, uh, a presentation. It's that I believe God, by the Holy Spirit, through His Word, aimed at Christ, actually speaks to you. That means stuff goes on inside your heart while I talk. Yeah, it's not fun to be a pastor. And if that's true, when you come here on Sunday mornings, how do you come? I cannot wait for God's Word. I'm hungry. I'm a sinner and I need help. I'm failing, but I know there's grace. I want to be challenged. I want to be encouraged. I'm hungry. The preached Word is God's strongest voice into your life, not your devotion. Are you eager to have God's Word work on you? We pick and we choose. We're interested in having a Savior, but we are not interested in having a King. And Jesus says, you don't get to pick and choose. You get me and everything that I come with. So you see, He comes with truth. He comes as truth. He comes with authority. And you have to decide, just like they have to decide, what we're going to do about it. He brings truth. He brings authority. Truth to the lies and authority over the lives of our life. The lies of our lives. 
but he also brings triumph. Triumph. You saw it in there. He says this. Sorry, I knocked it out. He says to them, I am an authority. They say about him, this is one, what kind of new teaching is this? He is one who teaches with authority. Even the demons obey him. Meaning he has come to bring truth, but he's also come to subdue his enemies. This demon is making a noise, making disruption in the service, just like we talked about at the beginning. And all Jesus has to do is go, be quiet, hush. Later in Mark, he'll say, be quiet, hush, and the waves will stop. The book of Mark is a, walk, is a walking through of Jesus' life, taking back creation, taking back people. And with just words, he can say, be quiet. Tim Keller says this, go through all the Old Testament, and there is no record of any prophet, any prophet or priest calling out an evil spirit. Not only that, there's no record of this taking place before. Not only that, there's no incantation or ritual, no hocus pocus, as it was always done by the exorcists of the time. Jesus does it with merely a couple of blunt words. Shut up and get out. And it was over. But here's where we want to be really careful. Just like we have to have him as a king and a savior, or not at all. You can stand in the crowd at Capernaum and be amazed by Jesus. And that still doesn't mean you follow him. You can be a demon and know everything there is to know about Jesus. They know that he's the Holy One of God. And it still doesn't mean you're following him. That means you can be in a crowd appreciating the Jesus who feeds the 5,000 and who helps with the poor. And that doesn't mean that you're following him. Or that you can know all the right theology there is to know, and it doesn't mean that you're following him. Following him means bending the knee of allegiance. He didn't just come to bring a new teaching. He came to make war against Satan and his followers. He came to set people free. C.S. Lewis says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil's demons. He said this a long time ago too. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe in and feel an excessive unhealthy interest in them. They, and he means the demons themselves, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. What Lewis is saying is what the devil wants to do, and he's happy to do it either way, the devil wants you freaking out about him, obsessed with it, learning all you can, overwhelmed by demons, spiritual warfare, and the devil, or he wants you to think it's all silly and doesn't matter and isn't real. And the reason these passages feel so far from us is the strategy the devil has used in the West is to convince people that the devil just doesn't exist. That's old, silly, religious thinking. That just doesn't exist. 
In other places of the world, the devil wants people to believe, and especially historically we find in Scripture, to believe and be terrified of the devil, meaning you're in real trouble. But the devil will do whatever he has to do to get you to not focus on Jesus. To not trust in Jesus. The context of the book of Mark is that Mark, remember, led by Peter, is telling the story to Rome about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The people in Rome, by the time they're getting Mark's letter, are being fed to wild animals, are being torched at the stake. They're persecuted. How good of news is it for you if you go to church secretly in a private room because your life is in danger and you see Jesus speak and demons run. What difference does it make to a regular person that Jesus speaks and demons run? It means there's hope, friends. It means that whatever is bothering you now won't always bother you. Whatever is troubling you now won't always be your biggest trouble. Whatever is persecuting you now will one day be gone. Whatever trouble you're facing will one day be something that makes you smile as you think back on it. When you're afraid, you remember, demons run from the voice of my king and my king is fond of me. So I don't understand what it is that I'm going through right now, but Jesus speaks and demons flee. He's fond of me. It's a good thing to see demons run from his voice. So what's your trial? Difficult loved ones, financial, marital struggles, family pain, discouragement, anxiety, depression, loneliness, sexual brokenness, Physical pain, job stuff, loneliness. Whatever your trial, remember that the one who has come for you is someone that brings the truth. And the truth is that God loves you and will rescue you. Embodies the truth, is the truth, but he also fights for you. This fight that he starts here in the synagogue with the demons is ultimately going to be fully fulfilled in his fight on the cross when he will take your pain and your sin and your suffering and mine. He will take all of that, embody it, and pay horrible punish for it. His father will turn and walk away from him all so that you can stay on his side, that he can be your Lord and Savior and King. God is saying, I am victorious. I will not be denied. Friends, you're not the first one to experience trials as a Christian. We have this voice that whispers to us that says, we've we've got to get to living a more normal Christian life. Friends, the trials you're suffering is the normal Christian life. And it will not last forever. But it's a fight story, make no mistake. In Ephesians, Paul says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul says, struggle, your struggle is not against flesh and blood. What's really happening is that there's a cosmic conflict going on in the background. Stop thinking that your wounds and your struggles and your sin is happenstance and random. 1 John 3.8 says this, and this sums up the work of Jesus. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Destroy the works of the devil. I love this from Revelation. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. The devil has gone down to you. But he is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. Do you hear it even in Revelation? When Jesus comes to bring this fight right to the doorstep of Satan, Satan gets angry and panics and causes a bunch of trouble that you're all experiencing. But even the devil knows that his time is short. You won't always feel this way. You won't always be burdened. You won't always be shamed. You won't always be struggling. I can say it with confidence because when John looks at the new heavens and the new earth, it's evident to him that Satan's time is done. But don't just be amazed at Jesus. Follow him. Follow him not just because he's the truth, not just because he brings victory. Follow him because he's tender. Did you see how he treats Peter's mother-in-law? He takes her by the hand. The king of the universe who could sneeze if he wanted to and heal her takes her by the hand and then spends the rest of the evening with the, the crowds at his front door one by one by one healing them. You are not a bother to Jesus. He came to bring you healing. He came to make, bring you his tenderness. He came to meet your needs. You are not an inconvenience to him. He touches them. It'll say in Matthew, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. When Jesus sees the crowds, he has compassion on them. You'll never draw near to him unless you believe that he wants you to draw near to him. He has compassion when he sees you. There's a story, a true story of a three or four year old at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church that fell into his grandparents' pool and wasn't found there for three or four minutes. Just one of those summer days where everybody is out and about and playing at the playground and running in and getting snacks and just as could happen with anyone, lost track of where the four-year-old is, and the four-year-old wind up in the bottom of the pool. His parents started to realize, like, hey, where's Josiah? Has anybody seen? I'm going to go look. Did you see Josiah? And his uncle and his grandfather walk up to the pool and see a lifeless four-year-old body at the bottom of the pool. Of course, they dive in and bring him out of the water resuscitate him, push the water out of his lungs, call for a helicopter. He's taken to the hospital and he, he's saved. He's rescued. But what's funny is when you're at the bottom of a pool, you can't cry out for help. But someone was coming anyway. 
When you're dead, you can't bring yourself back to life. But for Josiah, someone was coming for him anyway. What Jesus says to us is, I know you didn't cry out for help. And I know that you're dead, but I am coming for you anyway. I'm going to bring truth and be truth. I'm going to win. And I'm going to treat you tenderly. Where else would you rather run? Even if it means you have a king and not just a savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we're uh, <clears throat> we're honest sometimes about the fact that we don't like everything you say in the Bible, and we don't like having a king, but we sure love having a rescuer. Help us to delight in having a king who looks out for us as much as we delight in having a rescuer. Help us to embrace your truth and to know it's going to take us our whole life long to do so. Help us to bask in your victories. Help us to feel safe in your tenderness. And we are grateful that you put us on your side. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Help us to bask in your victories. Help us to feel safe in your tenderness. And we are grateful that you put us on your side. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.